0: I'm going to read from the Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed originally written at the, at a great, uh, at the Council of Constantinople in 325, and one of the, one of the creeds uh, of our church as well. The word should sound familiar, although we typically, we typically recite the Apostles' Creed, the, short, the shorter version of this more often. The creed reads, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank, Lord God this creed that has echoed throughout churches uh, in history uh, now echoes in our hearts and in our church. And we, and Lord, we proudly and gladly and thankfully profess this truth as we be, as prepare for worship this morning. Heavenly Father, pray you would send now your Holy Spirit and begin to open up our our cold uncaffeinated hearts, and prepare, us to, uh, prepare us to hear your word taught, to hear your story, your story told, to become and to uh, to worship you here in a few minutes in Jesus name. Amen. So if you look at the creed, you'll notice that there's a little bit on God the Father, there's a little bit at the end about God, God the Holy Spirit, and there's a big chunk in the middle about the Lord Jesus. Does anyone know why that is? What was the big controversy that the creed was addressing? Yeah, Arianism. There were, mo- there were many, many heresies in the church, but Arianism was the big one, so they spent a lot of time in discussion on who the Lord Jesus was, who the second person of the Trinity was. We 're not actually going to talk about that today there's actually because there is actually another little section in the creed that would become on to be a huge source of controversy we 're going to be spending our we're going to be splitting our time today as we talk about Constantine the eleventh between theological controversy and and a big siege uh, and we 're going to have both an equal because both were of uh, almost equal importance in the time for the life of Constantine before we jump into theological debate and warfare before the walls, however, I'm going to do what Sunday school instructors should never do and ask you to take out your phones, take out your phones and pull up your uh, maps uh, on there and search for Istanbul, Turkey, modern day Istanbul. We can't, if we're going to talk about Constantine the 11th, we have to talk about Constantinople and you cannot talk about Constantinople without actually seeing uh, how it is situated uh, in the world, in Eastern Europe. If you pull up Istanbul, which is what uh, which is what the city has been known as since 1453, which is when we'll wrap up, which is about the year we'll wrap up our lesson today. Uh, you'll see it's still very much the same as it was uh, the, all those hundred, over over 500 years ago, about the time we'll be talking about. Um, it's in modern-day Turkey, and you'll see if you look at it, it's on a peninsula that sticks out into the Straits of the Bosphorus. The Straits uh, the Straits are create a direct connection between the Black Sea and uh, and the trade in the Balkans, uh, where uh, modern-day Moldova and Belarus and Romania and um, other countries of the Balkans are located today. And so that from the Black Sea, you come down the Straits of Bos- the Bosphorus, the currents are notoriously quick uh, and difficult to navigate, but it was a straight route straight into the Sea of Marmara and that's right where Istanbul is located, right above the Sea of Marmara, which connects in the Aegean Sea, which connects in the Mediterranean, which connects to the rest of the world. And it was, this prominent, it was this prominent trading location that first attracted another Constantine, Constantine I, the Roman emperor Constantine I, known to history as Constantine the Great. It was him, he who decided to move the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome in Italy to uh, what, what, he would, uh, what was known, been variously known as Byzantium, uh, today known as Istanbul, and, but, he, but known to the medieval world as Constantinople after its founder. And it was because of this ideal location, the trade of the world passed right in front and through Constantinople, and the Byzantines had their hands in, in all of that. You also notice that it sits on the European side of the Straits, and right across the river uh, would be, was Asia. So it was a meeting of worlds, and it was extremely cosmopolitan and a prosperous city throughout its time. The other thing that's important to note is if you look at, Istanbul's right there on that peninsula, and that, that was known as the Golden, Ho- Golden Horn at the time. At the time that uh, Constantine XI became the 88th emperor of Constantinople, uh, it had, the, city had a, the city's walls uh, included, were about 12 miles long around the city. Of those 12 miles of defenses around the city, only four had actual, actually had uh, walls on the land. The other eight were all surrounded by water, the Sea of Marmara to the south, the Straits to the, to the east, and then that channel, and then the, uh, the harbor channel just above it. Uh, those were all defended primarily by the sea, and this was one of the reasons the city was so defensible, uh, particularly in the time when Constantinople had a navy. They could, they could not only defend themselves uh, with their galleys at sea, but they could, they could be supplied from multiple directions. The city uh, was next to impossible to defend. The only, the, only remaining, the only part by land was defended by what was known as the Theodosian Wall, and it was this massive wall. It was considered one of the most, uh, one of the strongest defenses of the medieval world, and inside, so within this safe, and advantageous spot, the city had prospered from its founding in 330 AD all the way up to the 1450s. So over a thousand years, the Byzantine Empire had been ruled from this spot, and um, the Byzantines—that's our name for them. They're not. They never called themselves that. They called themselves simply Romans. Uh, because they considered themselves the just uh, continuation of the Roman Empire that had founded back with Augustus, Augustus Caesar, uh, you know, long before Const- Constantine came. The city had been besieged twenty-six times. Um, before, uh, before Constantine, when Constantine became emperor. It had survived everyone one, ex- with one exception that we'll get to in a minute. Um, most of those sieges had come, in, had, particularly towards the end, had come from the Ottoman Turks, who had been, um, that's, the Ottomans, the Ottomans are a huge story unto themselves. Uh, we could easily spend all morning talking about them, but they had been growing and expanding their empire in Anatolia to the, uh, to the east of the city. They'd besieged it many times but had never managed to take it before. As a matter of fact, the only only people who'd managed to take Constantinople before were, ironically, fellow Christians from Europe. In 1204 A.D., the French and the Venetians of the Fourth Crusade successfully successfully captured Constantinople and ransacked it in one of the great betrayals of Christendom in history. Uh, That's a subject well worth studying. And it was, uh, it was ultimately, it would ultimately prove to be the death blow of Constantinople. The city never fully recovered. The, the Europeans set up a puppet state in Constantinople, their own little, uh, their own little Byzantine empire of, uh, of under European control for about, about 60 years before the Byzantines retook the city. Uh, but since then they had been, but they had, they had lost so much in that siege and they had lost so much in the ensuing years that they, uh, they had been in decline ever since. And this was an empire that had, that had uh, weathered the storms, the storms of the world for over a thousand years, and I don't, we really can't stress that enough. This was a remarkable, it's a, it's a period of history that's not well understood or studied today, but it was remarkably significant um, that they, they were able to maintain, they were able to maintain their dominions in very rapidly changing landscapes for a very long time. Now, our now, our subject today, was he was born on February 8th, 1405 A.D. Constantine was the fourth son. He was one of four brothers of uh, Emperor Manuel II and his wife Helena, who was, the daughter, uh, who was the daughter of a Serbian ruler. And little is known of Constantine's early life. He was, uh, early, he was overshadowed by his three brothers, one of whom would be, uh, would be the next to last emperor before him, um, and they... Uh, but he quickly proved to be the bravest and the most competent of his brothers. Um, during this time, the, Byzantines, the Byzantine emperors, there was, no, uh, there was no requirement that the eldest son inherit the imperial throne. This time there was a lot, uh, so uh, all the sons would be given opportunities to lead in various portions of the empire, and they would use that as both a training ground and a proving ground for the mm. capabilities. And uh, like his brothers, Constantine was given—he was given uh, command over uh, over what few outposts remained to the empire at the time in the Peloponnese and the Aegean Sea, and other parts. And he was given—he uh, he proved himself quickly as a capable administrator of cities, and a very, very, com- a very, very capable uh, general of armies in the field. He was—he was ambitious. He actually sought to try to retake some of what had been lost by the empire. And it ultimately came time that when his elder brother John um, uh, abdicated the throne, there was a lot of debate between the remaining brothers about who would be uh, who would be emperor in his place. But his mother, who was reigning as regent in Constantinople, insisted there could only be one man for the job. Constantine, the youngest, would be uh, was the most suited for it. When he ascended the throne, uh, there was a lot of uh, the world was ruled by superstition to a large extent. Both in both the Eastern Orthodox Church as well as the Roman Catholic signs and omens, as well as to the Ottomans and the, the Muslims themselves, there was a lot of regard for symbolism and circumstances, and so there was a lot of concern about his name. Constantinople had been founded by Constantine, obviously, and now we had another man named Constantine mm-hmm. On the th- who coming to the throne? There was uh, there was concern about this that uh, because there were there had been thought there had been prophecies and legends throughout that the the empire would end under Constantine as it had begun. So his name was ominous, but he was also uh, he was also despised for more more concrete reasons to the Byzantines. So if you think about Americans and you think about Americans hanging out in you know in uh, you know in Applebee's. Uh, or sports bars, and talking, they would be talking about, we'd be talking about sports, we'd be talking about politics, we'd be talking about, um, you know, what, what we've been binging on Netflix, and the the teams are similar in many ways, except they would be talking theology as well. They were passionately <laughs> devoted to talking about the things of the Church, and, and, dispute, and they would be disputing theological points uh, everywhere they go. And the hot topic of the day was a subject called unification, Constantinople was the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church in contrast to the Western Roman Catholic Church. Remember, this is, we're talking about the early 1400s right now. So Protestantism is still about a century, is still about a century or so away from making its appearance on the world stage. So, as far as the Christian Church was concerned, this was it, or these two. And they had been in dispute for thousands of years uh, for various reasons. But the main ones were two things. Anyone want to guess what the main, anyone know what the main points of dispute were? Yeah, Zandy. We're going to come back to that. That's right. That's the complicated one, but there's also, there's an easy one. Yeah, Bob. Well, they had idols in Constantinople too, so yeah, there's some debate over that. Now y'all are thinking too complicated. The Pope, the Pope in Rome, the Pope said, I'm in charge of everything on the church. And the, and the Greeks in Constantinople, they were like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, they, were, they were, after thousands, a thousand years of debate, they were willing to grant, they're, they're, you know, he was kind of important, but they said, your ultimate authority, we're not sure about that. The Eastern Orthodox Church was governed largely by the patriarchs, uh, particularly the great patriarch in, in Constantinople, whose uh, seat of authority would have been, been in the great church of St. Sophia. Um, actually Andrew talked about St. Sophia and another prominent patriarch with John, uh, with John Chrysostom just let, was it last week. My sense of time is very skewed. Um, and there's a, wonderful, there's a wonderful, as I was looking up Christom a little bit after Andrew's lesson, there's this wonderful painting that was made of him preaching in St. Sophia's. And he's uh, up above him is the Empress, uh, who is, you know, who, his great antagonist. And she's standing there looking imperious, and he's this old wizened man at this point. He's just railing from the pulpit at her, and she's in all her imperial finery. And I love the contrast of the Byzantine patriarchs and priests. They would wear very simple white robes. Uh, in contrast to both the Byzantine nobility and royalty, as well as to, of course, their, Ro- their Roman brothers to the west, uh, and so he's railing—you know—he's railing in his simple robes at the empress, and it was—it uh, was a good summary. It was a good summary of the contrast that made up Constantinople, because on the one hand, they were extremely prosperous; they were rich, they were powerful, they were—they um, had—they you know, were—they uh, were cultured. They, they had uh, huge stores of art and wealth. And yet, at the same time, they had this guilty conscience. And whenever the city affected, and the city uh, was affected by plague or under siege, Byzantines would run to confession of sin, and they would uh, they would all they would do that on the one hand, which we praise them for, and they would also turn to their relics and their idols at the same time. The city was thought to be under the direct protection of the Virgin Mary, and there was a frieze, there was a painting of her that was said to have miraculous powers. It was credited to actually have lifted sieges a few times before. We're going to talk about that a few times. So the Byzantines and the Roman Church, the Byzantine Church and the Roman Church had been in discussion for hundreds of years, trying to, get, trying to bring the Church together as they saw it. And there were various points of contention. And one of them was the authority of the pope. And the other one was, uh, was what Zandi mentioned, the one little Greek word that had been added to the Nicene Creed. When the Nicene Creed was originally written, it in the line about the Holy Spirit. Remember, that was not really where the contention was. Like we were talking about we were talking about God the Son primarily in that council, but they did include they included these important words about the Holy Spirit, and in, given and speaking of his orig, of his origins, he says it originally said the Holy Spirit, the Lord of Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father, and that's all it said when it was originally written in three twenty-five. And so it was later on that, that churches in the West began adding, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We probably take that for granted. With Protestants, we're in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church on this one. We kind of take that line for granted. But the Byzantines were, were very, very offended by that addition. They believe that there's, uh, there's a lot to be said here. Again, time is, time is wanting. Um, but those, on, those, who, those who say proceeds from the Father, from the Father, they didn't necessarily deny that he came from the Son as well. They just weren't sure, and they they viewed it as potentially demeaning to God the Father if the Spirit came from both. Now, of course, now, on the other hand, the Roman Catholic Church maintained, no, you're denigrating the Son if you, if the Spirit doesn't originate proceed from Him as well. Our own Westminster Confession, written long after the Nicene Confession, in Chapter Two says. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we basically, so the Confession canonized what had already been added to the Nicene Creed, and it draws and. Not going, to resolve this, not going to resolve this controversy for the, uh, the Western-Eastern churches right now, but just for our own edification, the reason that both Westminster divines as well as, uh, as, well as many others throughout history have, have said this, well, first of all, the reason that it wasn't originally said is we don't have a direct statement in Scripture where the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. It's not said that way like it is for the Father, and that's because a lot, of the t- a lot of the words from this come from Christ, speaking of the Spirit coming from his Father. But we do, what we do see is in John fifteen twenty six. Christ is talking to his disciples and says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So it specifically uses those words, proceeds from the Father, but it's Christ's talk, and he says, I'm sending him. And so the Roman Catholics and Protestants later saw in this that the Spirit comes equally from both the other two persons. And then again in Galatians chapter 4. Speaking of adoption, Paul writes, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here here the apostle identifies the spirit coming from the spirit being specifically of the son in addition to being of the father, as he's spoken of earlier. Um, I'm not doing this subject justice. Andrew, Renton, anything you all would want to add about this? Am I putting this on, am I, as long as we're on solid ground here. So that's where we stand. The Byzantines, were, the Byzantines, however, in general, were very opposed to this. And at this point, you're kind of wondering, well, th- this is great, and this is important. We need to understand the Trinity. Why was this such a hot topic? Surely we could, we could just all sit down over coffee and, you know, sort this out. Um, the reason that this was being pushed so hard and there's so much pressure on this subject is because of the Ottoman Turks. Because of the threat and invasion into Constantinople as well as the rest of Europe, they needed, they needed a unified front about this, and so that and that was so there were there were spiritual reasons, but there were also a lot of prime you know there are a lot of secular political uh, political and military reasons why they wanted this to work because Constantinople they wanted they wanted they'd been dangling the threat of crusades ever since they'd started in around the year one thousand in front of the Ottoman Turks, saying, look, if you all attack us, you're going to have Europeans rain down on your heads. And the, the Roman Catholic Church, they, on the other hand, needed Constantinople because it was the front line of defense against the Ottomans. And the defenses had been pretty disorganized in Europe through all this. So, Constantine, so coming back to Constantine himself, he was in favor of unification. He didn't, he didn't really have a dog in the fight on, the, on philoque, which was the Greek word and from the sun, that meant and from the sun. That was, it was that one word that was under dispute in the creed. He didn't really have a dog in that fight. He didn't have a strong opinion one way or the other. He took a very pragmatic approach saying we need Europe's help. So we need to, you know, he was pushing for, he was pushing for unification very strongly. He was leery of the Pope's grandiose claims of authority, but felt like, you know, accepting it would be worth, would be, would be a price worth paying if it got him the help he needed. In the form of fleets and supplies and you know men for the fight, because as we said, his his empire was waning uh, you know was waning by this point. Uh, it was at the Council of Florence that unification was technically accomplished when patriarchs and priests from Constantinople and from Rome met in Florence, Italy, and hashed out a document acknowledging the authority of the Pope, acknowledging the addition of of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son as well as the Father in the Nicene Creed. And everybody slapped themselves in the back, said good work, and then they took it back to Constantinople and there were literally riots in the streets. Everyone was so unhappy about this change. Uh, the, Bizan- the, the popular Byzantine opinion was that this was, this was compromised, that, that we were kowtowing to Rome, that we want, they wanted nothing to do with this. They, they literally pulled back and all the great churches from Saint Sophia down uh, stood empty because the Byzantine people would not would not even worship in unification churches, as they call it. they viewed it as compromise. Uh, at this point, it was around this time. It was right in the midst of this that Constantine was crowned emperor, but he was not crowned in the Saint Sophia by the patriarch, as he should have been, because he himself was a unification man, and the patriarch, uh, the, the patriarch Gregory at the time, he was also for unification. They they feared even they feared. They feared even worse ramifications if a unification emperor was crowned by a unification patriarch in the great in the great Church of Constantinople. So he was actually in um, he was actually outside of Constantinople at the time he was crowned in a very small ceremony. He didn't even he never actually received the imperial crown. He used just a lesser a headpiece that he put on himself, and then he had a big passage on a Genoese ship on a Catalan ship to actually get back to his own capital. When he got there, it was not a moment too soon, because the Ottoman Empire had recently received a new leader in the Sultan Mehmet II. I nearly, I nearly made him the subject for a day. He, was, he is such a fascinating man. I commend, commend both these men to your further study. Uh, it was truly two remarkable, two remarkable rivals during this period. Mehmet was young, and he let, it, he let everyone believe that he was just this callow youth who didn't really know what he was doing. Up until 1452, when he finally decided that he was going to reach out and pluck uh, the, the red apple, which is what Constantinople was known throughout the Muslim world. It, was, it, had been, it had been filling their dreams and their prophetic their prophecies since the, since Muhammad himself had come, because for much for all the reasons that Constantine wanted to found it, the Muslims wanted it as their capital as well. And right now, and the Ottomans were the Ottomans were the leaders of the Muslim world at this time. And it was Mehmet had decided this thorn in his side, he had had enough. And so in 1452, he had built this remarkable fortress, which you can still see today up on the Straits of the Bosphorus. It's called the, uh, the Rumelihaisen Castle, but it was known popularly throughout the world of time as the throat cutter. If you look at the Straits of Bosphorus, if you, look, if you travel up from Istanbul today up to this, the Black Sea, you'll find one point where it narrows to about 700 feet across. Uh, very, very tight. He built it right there, which meant that he could control all shipping up and down the straits, which was the main, you know, which was the main, uh, the main trade route throughout the world at the time. And so he had mounted the magnificent Ottoman artillery on the walls of this. It's a really funny-looking castle. If you look it up, it's it's built onto the hills on the uh, European side, and it's you know it, it look, uh, but it was designed to have multiple levels so they could fire multiple sh- you know they could fire from multiple vantage points onto the straits. And uh, some of the first ships, the Venetians were highly, uh, were highly um, skilled mariners and did a lot of trade at the time. And so the first couple of times they were like, we don't care about a fortress, they can't get us. So they would try to run their, sh- they would try to run their ships down the straits as fast as possible. And they learned to the error of their ways very quickly when the, the artillery reduced their galleys to splinters in, with one or two shots. The uh, Ottoman gunners were extremely talented. And so at this point, he so Mehmet at this point suddenly let the world know he was a force to be reckoned with. And he told Constantine, "You control nothing outside your walls. It is all mine now," and that was not an empty boast. Beginning in uh, beginning in uh, early Jan- so so by this point Constantine knew the great the great struggle uh, was coming very very soon, and so he was so he had spent. Before his reign and during his reign, he was doing everything he could to prepare. He was rebuilding the Theodosian walls. He was drawing men and materials from every corner of the empire and begging everything he possibly could off of Europe. Um, But he ultimately stood alone at this point. Europe was divided and confl- and conflicted for many many reasons. At this point, the last crusade led by the Hungarians had met uh, had met a terrible end at the hands of the Ottomans in 1444. Uh, they'd been absolutely slaughtered at uh, the Battle of Varna, and they in uh, in Eastern Europe and they had and that had basically broke uh, that basically broke the crusading spirit in Europe for all time. Almost 500 years of crusades came to an end then. Um, there would not be a significant one again. But, of course, they didn't know that at the time. Mehmet was still worried about this. Constantine was still hopeful by this. So he was, he was trying to do everything. The Pope in Rome, he knew, uh, he knew the gravity of the situation. He was trying to spur the Venetians into sending a fleet, and the Genoese, and the Catalans, and he was trying to get the Hungarians, who were most directly threatened by the Ottomans in Europe, to, to mount another one. So all this is going on, but Constantine basically has nothing but the people in the wall, in, within his walls. And if you had been in Constantinople at this time, it would not have been the great city. It would have been a few hundred years before. The city was largely empty. It had a population of about 50,000 at the time. And that's down from nearly 500,000 at its peak. And so it was, it was, it was basically walls with little rural centers and long distances in between them. There were just weren't enough people to actually fill up the city at this point. So in early 1453, a year that you should always remember, the... Um, the Ottoman army appears. The Ottoman fleet sails up uh, the, Mar- the Sea of Marmara into the Bosphorus, takes up position, takes up position on- off the Golden Horn, and the Ottoman army appears on the plains before the Theodosian Wall—that four miles of incredible wall that they have to defend—and the Ottomans, I'm going to resist the urge to talk about Ottoman cannons for the rest of the day. You've already heard me talk about this siege of Malta, but they were—they uh, were amazing. And Mehmet, in particular, had advanced the art. With a man named, he had worked with a German engineer named Orban to build some truly terrifying cannons, the largest cannons in history. Uh, there was, there's no point in making them this big today, but at that point, the Ottomans loved them not just for their destructive power, but for their psychological impact, because it sounded like the gates of hell being ripped open when these things were fired. The largest was a super gun that was 18 feet long. Uh, any the, the largest man in here get down on his hands and knees and crawl down the barrel. It was so big. It shot it shot these massive thousand pound uh, concrete balls uh, out of it. It took hours to load and prep for firing and it split and cracked multiple times during this great siege. It had to actually be repaired on the field with bands of bronze. These things were cast, cast completely from bronze, which was the strongest amalgam metal uh, that the, the engineers at the time could use. And there, were hu- there was this huge, uh, this huge r- ritual and pageantry that went with casting a great Ottoman gun. because um, Spiritually, they viewed this as part of spiritual warfare. This was this was an act of jihad, crafting these crafting these terrible machines. Practically, if they were trying to get all the impurities out of the metal, so they could actually withstand the shock of repeated firing. Um, It's really interesting to read about. So they had set up. They had this big. Then they they had the big super gun, and they had others slightly smaller. And they began to just reduce the walls to rubble. These walls were viewed as impregnable, and within a few a few days. They, they were falling down like crazy. The Ottoman gunners would shoot three shots. They'd shoot, make a triangle pattern. They'd shoot one at the top, and then they'd shoot two, two side by side, and then one at the top, and that would just reduce the walls to gravel uh, you know, in a matter of hours. And so, the, and so Constantine, he's looking at an army um, anywhere from 80,000 to 200,000. The numbers vary a little bit. He had about 5,000 men to defend these walls and the city with. Uh, so that, was the, that was about all that remained of the, that was about all that remained of soldiers within the city and, any, and anyone from outside that he could, you know, blackmail, beg, borrow, bribe to keep them inside to help with the defense. Um, and so, literally, as the walls were crumbling down, they had to start, the, the, the entire population of the city would turn out to rebuild earthen, uh, an earthen wall behind it. And those actually proved to be remarkably effective. Um, the what you know when a cannonball would hit the wall, the stone walls, it would shatter. But when it hit the earth, it would basically just go and stick into the mud. And so these were mar- but they weren't as great for they weren't as great for defending from an actual attack. Uh, if you know the, if the Ottomans actually mounted an assault on the walls, so there was this ho- there was this balancing act that was going on back and forth. The Ottomans would destroy the walls. The Byzantines would rebuild you know, rebuild the stockades. The Ottomans would try to attack it. They'd repulse the attack. And this was going on incessantly for about three months. There's, there's, a, there's a ton that we could talk about in this, but we're running short of time, so I'm going to skip to the end. The, uh, much of the defense of the city had been... Uh, Constantine, had, Constantine had directed it himself. He was extremely active. He was everywhere at once. He was seconded in the general command by a Genoese commander named Giovanni Justiniani, who was who was remarkably adept at siege warfare, he was a he was probably the best the probably the best Christian commander for a siege that you could possibly have, and he um, he had been promoted general command, but he was mortally wounded in the defense on the morning of May 29th, fourteen fifty three. He was mortally wounded. Uh, he was he had been he had been everywhere, and he had uh, he finally that day was taken by his men back to his ships um, because he he. Uh, Constantine begged him to get back on his feet and remain there because he was so critical. Um, But the champion ended up leaving for his ships in the harbor. Constantine said to him as he was carried off, my brother, fight bravely. Do not forsake us in your distress. The salvation of the city depends on you. Return to your post. Where are you going? Uh, But Justiniani would not be turned. It was not his city after all. Um, It was about this time that uh, the siege had been going on for a long time, and the morale was at an all-time low in the city, but it was also, interestingly, at an all-time low uh, in the attacking army as well. Besieging siege city is psychologically very, very difficult. It's very hard to keep men in the field. The advantage is always with the defenders. And Mehmet was dealing with, uh, he was dealing with advisors telling him, look, just put the city under tribute, and let's go back home. You know, we'll save face, we'll get a bunch of money, uh, we can get it another time. Uh, but, and Mehmet was determined he would not be yet another, uh, he would not have yet another failure before the walls of Constantinople. So he planned, so uh, before May 29th, May 28th, uh, 27th, 28th, 29th, with the, with the final great assault on Constantinople, and he threw everything he had at the city, and he did it very intelligently. Instead, of, he w- he, divided it, he divided his army in divisions and he just sent them in waves. So the first wave would attack. They'd be repulsed, driven back, he'd send the next wave in. Uh, they'd attack, they'd fall back. The next wave would come in. And so while one wave was attacking, the other wave was resting and refitting, and he was basically just going to pound it like the ocean on the other four sides until the city finally cracked. On, the, on his side, Constantine knew that this was the last assault. And if he could have held out, the siege would have to break because the Ottomans just couldn't keep it up forever. So he was there on the walls with his, with his men, uh, with all, almost every able-bodied citizen in Constantinople, uh, f- you know, fighting at the last great assault. There was a small gate called the Circus Gate. It was, uh, it was under the Great Palace uh, at Bacchanai in the walls and it was been used by the defenders to to lead sorties to lead attacks out through the walls to attack the army and one even and there were many such doors in the walls and they would and you know as you might think those would be real weaknesses in a wall to have those openings so they were fastidiously managed and cared for but this one was left open uh, through a a variety of reasons and a small detachment uh, from the Ottoman army was able to go in the door and go up a tower and they were, uh, they raised the Ottoman flag, the, 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 the crescent moon on a green flag, on a green field. And they raised it, and, uh, and this, the defenders at that moment, uh, Justiniani had fallen, a Tower, the, the flag was seen flying over the walls and the morale of the defenders finally snapped. And they began to flee, uh, with every, they began to flee and return to their families and tried to find every way possible to get out of the city. And in, in the great, in the last great assault, um, the city was overrun. Constantine, seeing that the day was lost, he's standing there looking at the Ottoman flag flying over his city, he said, "The city is fallen, and I am still alive." And it was at that moment um, he he took he took his he ripped off his imperial robes that he was wearing, and he just let he remained in his he took it, in his armor they had underneath. He drew his sword. And he flung himself into the fighting where it was the thickest around the St. Romanus Gate. And he was never seen again. Legends survive that he didn't actually die. Um, Legend says that an angel came and took Constantine and turned him into stone and buried him under one of the great gates of the city until such time that he should return and retake the city they had lost that day. Is that true? No, of course not. Do I believe it? Absolutely, because it's a great story. It, uh, it reminds me of the Arthur legends that says that at the end of time, Arthur, Arthur will return to Britain. And I say he can't come soon enough. Um, shortly after that Mehmet, um, the city was given up to plunder, rape, pillage. Uh, it was, Ottoman, uh, Ottoman plundering of cities was a horrible thing because by Sharia law the army had three days in which they could do whatever they wanted to the city, to its inhabitants, to its possessions. Um, Mehmet actually ended up breaking that law. He stopped it after six, only six hours because he, he wanted the city as a capital. He didn't want everything leveled to the ground. Um, but that was enough time. Because the city was so reduced in population, because its wealth had fallen so much, that was enough time for the Ottoman troops to find nearly everything and everyone in the city. While this is going on, Mehmet walked to St. Sophia, uh, the, great, the great church, and, in, and in struck, by, struck by, with awe by the magnificent piece of architecture, he kneels down and scoops up dust from the ground of his city now, and he sprinkles it on his turban before he walks in. And then inside, he as he gazes around, he has an imam climb up into the pulpit and read Muslim worship in Saint Sophia for the first time. And that great church has been a great mosque ever since. Mehmet was only Constantine was 48 years old when he died in 1453. Mehmet uh, was only 21. So the so wrapping up here, the city. The city became the capital of Ottoman Empire, and this was, and it was shortly after this that that empire reached its uh, reached its apex of its power, and influence, and its menace uh, to Europe and to the entire world. the the uh, The Ottoman Empire was survive for nearly 450 years. Into anyone know anyone knows when the Ottoman Empire fell? 1922, at the end of World War I. They backed the wrong side in World War I, and that was the end of the Ottoman Empire, the very same empire that. That took Constantinople in 1453. History is is very short sometimes. So Constantine XI, the 88th emperor of Byzantium, fell. Uh, With him fell the city, Uh, with with his fall and the the fall of his city, the Byzantine Empire came to an end, 1,123 years after Constantine the Great founded it. Or, if you if you take the Byzantines at their word, almost 1,500 years after the Roman Empire had been found by Augustus Caesar in Rome, um, Byzantine had stood as a bulwark of Christendom for over a thousand years, and with her fall, and she had been the front like I said before, she had been the front line of defense against uh, the on- against jihad and the Muslim world for a long time. She had been a focal point of the Crusades. She had encouraged the Crusades uh, because it brought uni- unified help from Europe, which had. Uh, but the Crusades had been more, far more trouble than aid to her over the over the hundreds of years that they had run. Um, she had squabbled with uh, the Christians in the West, uh, and she had been and she had fallen to their depredations in 1204, weakening her for this final defense. But even, even in her fall, the Lord used her to provide a foundation for His Church. It was so. Remember the date, 1453. It was after this that the great culture, the, the culture, the knowledge, the experience, the the ancient writings that had been stored within the libraries and in the minds of scholars in Constantinople were now scattered west, and they headed into Europe. And amongst the other things that came were original, were original copies of the scriptures, and original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic texts. Uh, That started to pour into the hands of scholars in the West, into universities, into the minds of the rising humanists, as they were called. And it was from this... And men began to to read these texts. Uh, They began to lay aside their Latin texts in the Roman Catholic Church and began to read the original words of Scripture for the first time. Their minds began to move. We can think about John... uh, John Wycliffe would have been alive soon after this, one of the early pre-reformers in England. And he would start... uh, and, you know, he would start translating the scriptures. And it wasn't long before, you know, it wasn't long before this knowledge um, uh, gave rise, helped build, gave rise to the Reformation that came. And, but we need to remember, um, so in the midst of the city's fall, the Lord still had concern for his church. And we need to remember that because this, um, it's easy, uh, there's a lot of time that's passed. But this would be, this would have been, just like when Rome fell, before to the Visigoths you know, a few hundred years before, this, this fall would have been seen as an apocalyptic moment in history. People would have wondered, how will we survive with Constantinople gone? And that the city that had been presumed upon uh, by the West for so long, they presumed that it would always be there, uh, no matter what they did, it would always be there as a barrier. Now it was gone. We need to remember at this time that the Lord reigns and that he keeps, uh, he keeps his church and that unless he guards the house, the watchmen lie awake, uh, lie awake at night in vain, which is truly, which is, uh, which is what the Byzantines learned. Um, I think one of the most tragic stories that, that I read about this was a, there was a processional through the streets of Continental when the siege was at, at one of its fiercest. And they had taken, they had brought with them this great, this painting of the Virgin Mary that I mentioned before. Uh, they pinned a lot of hopes into the. They had pieces of the True Cross. They had. Uh, they had all kind. Of, they had a massive collection of relics uh, that were venerated within the city, and they put a lot of hope in these things. How could this city fall when we have all these? We have all this stuff. We have all this important stuff, and so this venerated painting of Mary was being carried throughout the city. And in the midst of it, a freak thunderstorm rolled up. And the wind and the rain were, and the lightning and thunder were so bad that they could barely uh, make any progress. And they, they were huddling in walls. And at this point, the wind took the painting on top of a pole on which it was being carried, and it threw it to the ground. And the, the, desperate, the desperate, terrified worshippers were following it, tried to pick it back up, and they, it wouldn't budge. And suddenly, this wooden painting was as heavy as lead laying on the ground, and it, it, couldn't, it couldn't be moved. And so they struggled with her time. Finally, got it back, and finally got it back up, and retreated back into the churches in despair. Um, there was a, there were images. There were, there was this, there was this terrifying spectacle at Saint Sophia's. The roof, uh, one evening, was illuminated in orange. The dome of the great roof was illuminated in orange from top to bottom. And yet, and then slowly, that orange light uh, disappeared. Began moving up the dome until it reached the top spire, and then it, it disappeared in a flash of light up the top. And for those, for superstitious minds looking for omens, this was a a grievous one, both to the Byzantines inside Washington as well as to the Ottomans outside the wall. Uh, Mehmet rushed to his astrologers and had them propagate some propaganda saying, no, no, this is a good sign. This means we're going to take the city. Um, But inside, it was almost viewed as though the spirit himself was leaving the city without his protection. It's so very, very. It's very interesting. There's, a, there were similar, there were similar signs recorded by multiple observers when the Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. Um, it's just a reminder. So, historians you read will dismiss these things, and of course, um, there's, a, there's a lot. If you pin your hopes on superstitions and signs and wonders, then you're going to all. Your assurance will be very easily shaken, as it was, as it was for those, as they for the Byzantines, as they carried their idols through the streets. Uh, but I also think it just gives us a flavor of just what a momentous event this was, and what a, what a massive change the world was facing through this, that Constantine saw through. And we need to praise God for Constantine um, and learn from him. That is an example of, we can learn a lot from, the, from men and women who face, who face the end of great things, and learn from their, learn from their uh, commitment, learn from their patience, their willingness to go on, even in difficult times. And uh Constantine certainly saw that. Any questions this morning? I know I've been rambling on at top speed here. Yeah, Bob. Well, you brought it back around on the symbol of the seminary mm-hmm. And the way it went by, and the, the big battle that mm. finally ran up the, um, the flag. The flag of the Ottomans, yeah. I see. The flag of the battle, a symbol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, they can. Yeah, Zanny. This may be an arcane point, but I have heard that perhaps one of the reasons for the filioquic controversy was basically the word in the Latin Creed and the word in the Greek creed. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of that c- kind of confusion around it, and this debate rages on to this day. It's still, it's still not resolved. Yeah. Symbols are important. Language is important, but sitting down and just talking, talking is, is probably the most important thing. Yeah. So often, yeah. Well, I mean, the battle for hearts and minds is often a battle for the dictionary. What words we use—the words we use to describe things—is what is how we express. the most important way we express who has authority over certain things. So they—I mean—they were right to take the take the debate seriously. about it. All right. Unless there's anything else, let's pray and prepare to worship. Lord God, build our defenses. Build them first around our hearts. Lord, let us, let us mind them like Constantine did the walls. Let us mind the walls of our hearts like Constantine looked to his walls before the siege. Let us be aware of the weaknesses, of the holes, of the points of attack that we are susceptible to. Lord, we are fallen men and women. We have, uh, Lord, we have places where we shall, we shall fall to sin, to our temptations, to our lusts, unless you protect us. So Lord, give us diligence and vigilance, I pray. Lord build your church today that you have preserved through terrible uh, through terrible events like the fall of constantinople and many other things. Lord come with, come and be with us and Lord protect us uh, not not so much within these physical walls as within this body. Lord keep us together. Give us a heart that in love for your truth for the for the for its sweeping themes and for its minute details. And Lord let us uh, Lord Lord let's get right the truth that you've entrusted to us and Lord let us do it with love and unity with our brothers. Lord, we have seen again how, per- how perilous it is to err on either side uh, in, in the truth or in the unity over it. So, Lord, we pray you would come, give us both, and let the world know that, uh, that the Lord Jesus reigns because only he can bring both. So, Lord, we acknowledge ourselves to be your servants, and we love you, we praise you this morning. Make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.